Well, it's a new year, a new Sunday, and uh, as we kick off 2022, I want to start off a new series that we'll be doing over the next couple of months. And before I jump right into it, I have to give you a little bit of an introduction. Uh, On March 1st, I have a book coming out that's called The Five Masculine Instincts. You've probably heard me mention it or talk briefly about it. Uh, I've been working on this book when it comes out in March for what will be six years. I went back and looked at the notes app on my computer, and I see I have some of the initial notes based on the story of Samson that six years ago I started working on. And uh, the book actually started very much with this church and our time together. Six years ago, we preached through the book of Judges. Some of you were here for that a long time ago, multiple locations ago. And as we worked through the book of Judges, I spent three weeks talking about the character of Samson. Uh, At the time, those stories about Samson had a really big impact on me personally. But even as I interacted with some of the other men in the church, uh, many of us were resonating with some of the lessons that were coming out of Samson's life. I started working on additional notes around those Samson stories, and that worked into a full-length book manuscript. I actually wrote a 70,000-word book that needed to be edited down some, but that's where it started, that was all on this idea of restlessness in men, the need for adventure that Samson was experiencing, the way that those desires betrayed him in the story. Uh, Over that time working on that book, I ended up working with a literary agent, and we had an offer from Zondervan, some of you will be familiar with, to publish the book, which we accepted. And then, as happened in many of your lives, COVID hit, and Zondervan made the decision to terminate 15 contracts. Mine ended up being one of those contracts due to a reprioritizing of projects during COVID. So that sort of started the process again. Uh, We ended up signing a contract with Moody, Moody Publishers, which is associated with Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And through that process, they asked me to rework the concept of the book to maybe represent more than just one biblical figure, what ended up being five characters, so four in addition to Samson. So all of that work I had done on the character of Samson got compressed down to one chapter in the new book, and I basically wrote a whole other manuscript. This is why it took six years for this process to play out. Uh, And we eventually got to a publication date, which will be March 1st that that book is coming out. I spent a lot of time debating how I wanted to make you aware of that project and, and what role that book should play in our time together as a church. Uh, I talked this through with the board a little bit, and I did make the decision I wanted to spend the next couple months walking you through some of the ideas and the material from that book. But before I do that, I need to put a couple of big caveats in place, some questions that probably come up for you as well. I was nervous to do this because the last thing I want you to feel is that I have a a captive audience to market and self-promote myself to. So uh, what I did, the Lord actually helped me with this one. He allowed me to start this series on the worst weather day we've had in probably two years. So uh, I don't have to worry about too much self-promotion. But I mean this in that my first priority is to be the pastor of this church. And that's, as I've made clear to the board many times, my heart is first and foremost, not as a writer, but as a pastor and to pastor this group of people. But at the same time, it felt odd for me to spend so much time, six years of my life working on something. And if I could say it, I really believe in it. Um, Part of the reason I've sustained that work is I think this conversation with men matters a lot right now. And I believe in what I've done in the book. And so to not share that with my own congregation was starting to feel a bit strange, as if there was this thing I was really passionate about, but I wasn't letting you guys in on it. So I decided uh, to take these two months, and I would make this statement one time, 
So one time I'm going to tell you about how you can buy the book, and I promise you will never hear me say it again so that you know I'm not trying to push books on you. Uh, This week we begin the pre-sale promotion for the book leading up to it in March 1st. And so if you're interested in pre-ordering a copy, uh, it would be a huge help. It's available anywhere you buy books, Amazon, Target, Walmart, Lifeway, Christian Books. You can do it online. Those pre-orders do matter because the publisher uh, makes decisions about how to market and promote the book based on how those pre-order sales are doing. This is already far more than you or I want to know about how book marketing works. Uh, But if you are wanting to help, the best way you could do would just be to pre-order a book. If you're uninterested in that, don't, and I'm happy to give you one when they come in on March 1st. I'm really not trying to sell books or push books on you. The second big caveat, though, to this series is this question. Are we really going to spend two months just talking about men and masculinity? Some of you are saying, uh, could I just skip for two months and then I'll be back with you in March when we pick up something for the ladies? To answer that question, I need a bit of an explanation for why I think this topic matters. There's no doubt that the world of the Bible understood that there were fundamental differences between men and women. You can't read the biblical stories without recognizing the context and the world that the Bible is set in was very different than the world that we live in. And one of the ways it was different was there was this big social difference between men and women that the Bible finds itself interacting and dealing with. But one of the things that also strikes me about reading through the Bible is that the Bible doesn't present salvation as two different projects, a project for men, a project for women. The way I like to say this is there isn't a list of Christian character traits for men and a list of Christian character traits for women, as if we might have the masculine fruit of the Spirit and the feminine fruit of the Spirit. Or you might notice we're not given a masculine Savior for men to live like and a feminine Savior for women to live like. What the Bible does is it calls men and women both to Christ's likeness. It calls all of us to the fruit of the Spirit, to the reality of these beatitudes being lived out in our lives. Men should be courageous, and so should women. And men should be meek, and so should women. The Bible doesn't somehow split these and say that women are meek and men are courageous. No, it calls us to all of these same traits. We're all called to gentleness and kindness and self-control and courage and meekness. So the question is, if the Bible calls all of us to the same set of characteristics, these same traits, does it even make sense to talk about men and women, to talk about the challenges possibly facing men or women? Um, Here's why I think it does matter. We live in a world that right now has given all of its energy and attempts to flattening gender, but yet it seems like if you pay attention to our culture, there's never been a culture more obsessed with gender. The conversation about masculinity matters partly because it's so much at the center of our cultural conversations in this day. It's hard to avoid the conversation about masculinity, about gender in our culture, and so it would seem odd to then not look at it as believers and try to ask the questions that our culture is raising in light of Scripture. But I also think it matters because over and over, studies do find that there are some basic differences between men and women. Some of them are related to personalities, although there's major overlaps. Some of them are biological and hormonal. Some of them are culturally inherited, expectations, responsibilities that we pick up. But all of those end up producing what are unique experiences and expectations, both in the world but also inside of families, yourself, congregations. You need only raise a boy or a girl, maybe a pair of them, one of each, to recognize some of these basic realities of culture and biology and expectations. 
I like to use this analogy for how I think we're all aiming at Christ-likeness, yet this conversation about men and women really does matter. Um, Some of you know Ashley and I like to sail. We have a not-so-fancy old sailboat that we keep on Stockton Lake. And uh, if you've ever been on a sailboat, you know it is very, very different than being on a powerboat. Uh, The two require totally different skill sets, totally different knowledge, although it is possible in both boats to reach the same destination. The analogy I like is that if we set out to sail from L.A. to Hawaii, what is a very common course people take, and I chose a sailboat and you chose a cruise ship, which some of you would prefer, the tactics for going from that port to the other port are very different depending on the ship. You make completely different strategic approaches to how you'll undertake it. If you're on the cruise ship, you can point the bow at Honolulu and be there in less than a week and spend most of your time on the deck lounging and having a Coke and watching shows. If you choose a sailboat, it's a totally different decision process. Most sailors are required to actually sail away from Hawaii to pick up the right trade winds that they need to then turn and sail faster to the island. You actually end up sailing a very, very different line than the powerboat takes. For a sailboat, it's usually about a three-week trip versus a one-week trip. This is my point. We all share the same destination as men and women, Christ-likeness, Christian character, the fruit of the Spirit evident in our lives. But the reality is these bodies, these genders, these experiences and expectations mean that we may each make slightly different decisions and adjustments and tactics to be able to get to that same destination. So the question was, are we going to spend two months talking just to men? Sort of. (laughs) But if you really understand what I think these biblical characters we're going to be looking at each week are about, I think you'll recognize that their lessons are obviously for more than just men. We all learn from them. We all learn these characteristics, these aspects of Christian character from them. But it's also true that we can learn a lot about one another. When we understand each other as believers, as men and as women, we all serve one another better, encourage one another better. Part of the reason I'm okay with carving out these couple of months to talk about this topic, and specifically to aim some of this at men, is that there are real challenges that the church is facing when it comes to this conversation. One way of saying it simply would be, men are not doing okay in the world that we live in, and the church has been struggling over the last few decades to try to reach men, to speak to men. There was a recent article by a journalist named Michael Ian Black who explained how our conversation with men have been lacking. Not a believer, he's writing in a secular newspaper. He said, to be a girl today is to be the beneficiary of decades of conversations about the complexity of womanhood, its many forms and expressions. Boys, though, have been left behind. No commensurate movement has emerged to help them navigate towards a full expression of their gender. It's no longer enough to, quote, be a man— We no longer even know what that means. When I read that, it rang really true with me. For most of you, men and also women, if I said, take out a piece of paper and a pen and write down for me a basic definition of what it means to be a man, I think most of us would struggle with what that looked like. Maybe some strange list of cliche stereotypes or expectations. But to complicate it even more, if I asked you to give a basic definition of what it meant to be a Christian man, most of us would struggle to give an answer to that. The consequences have been pretty unsettling for this. I want to give you a series of stats that I think paints a little bit of the picture and the challenge that men are facing. According to the American Foundation of Suicide Prevention, 
In 2018, men died by suicide 3.54 times, three and a half times more than women. White men accounted for 69.7% of all suicidal deaths. The Los Angeles Times called the current rate of teen suicide a high watermark and has pointed out that it's being driven by a, quote, sharp rise in suicide among older teenage boys. Men are more likely to be the victim of a homicide and also the perpetrator of it. In fact, 90% of homicides in the United States are carried out by men. The Federal Bureau of Prisons reports that 93% of its inmates are men. That's 157,000 men for 11,000 women. Our nation's current opioid crisis is being led by men. Men are more than twice as likely to die from an opioid overdose. On average, men start using drugs at an earlier age, and men are statistically more likely to abuse alcohol, tobacco, and drugs during their life. Men continue to show signs of academic decline as well. Um, This one's really remarkable considering that it was just a generation ago, my grandparents' generation, that most women were not even participating in higher education. In 1947, women women accounted for 12.2% of college enrollment. Today, women account for 60%, but it's not just that more women are attending college, which would be a good thing. Fewer men are choosing to participate in education. There are currently 2.2 million more women in colleges nationwide than men, and not surprisingly, men are increasingly more likely to drop out of high school and choose not to attend college. More than twice as many adults aged 25 to 34 are still living at home compared to the late 1960s. That number represents 11.5% of all women and 18.3% of all men. This uh, epidemic of young men not moving into the workforce but staying home has created this whole culture. Um, There's forums like 4chan and 8chan that produce this subculture of disengaged men living in their parents' basements who have developed these whole identity sets, referring to themselves as NEETS, an acronym which means not in education or employment, or INSULS, which stands for involuntary celibates. Whole generations of men who have just checked out from marriage, from life, from education, from employment. There's a deep connection between this social isolation and the proclivity towards violence. As the Washington Post asked in 2019, we need to talk about why mass shooters are almost always men. David Brooks has a book called The Second Mountain in which he talks about the loss of character in American society, and he writes, These mass killings are about many things, guns, demagoguery, and the rest, but they are also about social isolation and the spreading derangement of the American mind. Whenever there's a shooting, there's always a lonely man who fell through the cracks of society, who lived a life of solitary disappointment, and who one day decided to try and make a blood-drenched leap from insignificance to infamy. Social isolation is not just a problem with young men, though. The Boston Globe recently suggested that the greatest threat to middle-aged men is no longer smoking or obesity, but loneliness, pointing to an increased use in drug use and suicide amongst those men. As often reported, the impacts of male disengagement and their isolation has devastating consequences, not just on men, but also on the American homes. Statistics suggest that one in four children now grows up in a fatherless home. That's 19.7 million children without an actively involved dad. But that statistic doesn't come close to representing the number of homes who have a dad present but not actively involved in the child's life. 
They have disengaged from the responsibility of active fatherhood. And fatherlessness is creating a cycle of problems for each new generation of men as they struggle to take up the work of fatherhood, not having had a father themselves. The National Fatherhood Institute put it this way, there is a father factor in nearly all social ills facing America today. Fatherlessness has been linked to a greater risk of poverty, a higher likelihood of teen pregnancy, substance abuse, incarceration, and a higher likelihood of committing violent crimes. There are also statistics that sound like they might be positive statistics in our culture that, as you wrestle with them, become more worrisome. In 2018, several news agencies reported on a series of studies that were showing the millennials were having significantly less premarital sex than previous generations were. While the number of Americans who now say that sex between unmarried adults is, quote, not wrong at all, has continued to increase, sociologists found it strange that millennials, although they believed that, seemed to be practicing it less frequently. There have been positive results results from it. In a study from 1991 to 2017, the Center for Disease Control reported that teen intercourse has dropped from 54% to 40%. Teen pregnancy rates have actually been falling dramatically over the last couple of decades. Many sociologists have been perplexed why we have such free views, but yet seem to be, in millennials' case, practicing it less and less. Many are starting to suggest that we're just seeing the initial impacts of what has become the pervasive consumption of online pornography in our culture. A Barna study found that two-thirds, 64% of U.S. men, consumed online pornography monthly, and that as much as 79% were in the age group 18 to 30. Many men seem to be avoiding the complexity and the vulnerability of actual relationships in favor of digital consumption, and the consequences have been deeper isolation, more withdrawal, and all kinds of ongoing relational distortions that we see play out across culture. What are we going to make of all of the ways that men seem to be struggling? Maybe to define it, disengaging all of the traditional expectations and responsibilities that we've expected of them in the past. Psychologist Dr. Helen Smith has labeled the problem men on strike. And in a book by the same title, she concludes this. Our society has told men that they are worthless perverts who reek of male privilege. And so we've reaped what we've sown. To her point, The Atlantic published a fascinating piece on dads and sitcoms, which I've had many of you point out seeing in your own realities, that on TV, if there's a dad in the home, he's always an idiot. It must reflect our own discomfort with dads being competent. You put a dad in front of kids, and the dad gives the worst advice. You put a dad in front of a toaster, and he burns the house down. That's actually a little bit of an abbreviation all of those statistics of some of the things that I had been working and pulling and collecting over these years, writing on the challenges. The ones that really concern me, though, are the way the church has been responding, because the truth is the church's statistics aren't much better when it comes to men. It's long been documented that men are participating less in church and religion than women. According to a comprehensive study the Pew Research did, in the United States, women are 8% more likely to attend a weekly religious service 10% more likely to practice daily prayer, and 13% more likely to acknowledge the importance of religion in their own life. The columnist Roth Duthat in the New York Times, again, not a Christian, not writing from a Christian news organization, picked up the topic, recognizing how significant it is, and concluded, 
Today, most Christian churches and denominations in America, conservative as well as liberal, male-led and female-led, have some sort of gender gap, some modest but often stark. Despite their varying theologies, evangelicalism, mainline Protestant, Mormonism, and Catholicism all have about a 55 to 45 female to male split in religious identity. The church has struggled to be able to address these challenges with men. In some cases, we've gotten into some really bizarre ideas. I call it beards, bacon, and blowing things up men's ministry. We've tried everything we possibly can get our hands on to attract men, to try to draw a crowd, to try to get men interested in religion again. And in many ways, I worry the last two years of COVID has just made all of this much worse. Most of my statistics are pre-COVID. And the truth is, we all know suicide rates are higher now than they were two years ago. Drug use has gone through the roof. An increased number of young men have completely dropped out of the workforce. Church attendance is not back, bouncing back as we had hoped. And men are more and more increasingly isolated, like so many have become over the last two years. The word I like to use to describe what I think men are facing is the word malaise. Maybe not a word you use often. A malaise is that sense of uneasiness, feeling that something is wrong, but you're not quite sure exactly what it is. It's hard to put your finger on it. Sometimes we use malaise to describe a weariness or a sickness that we're not quite sure what we have. I think that that's what so many men in our culture are feeling. Things feel off, but we're not quite sure what it is. We end up feeling defensive, and many men end up defending things they might not have ever actually chosen or considered, but feel put on the defensive by culture nonetheless. I like to use a quote from Walker Percy's novel. Uh, It's about a 30-year-old disengaged male struggling to find his identity, and he expresses it this way. Men today are dead, 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 and the malaise has settled like a fallout. And what people really fear is not that the bomb, he's writing in the 1960s, the sort of atomic bomb era, what people really fear is not that the bomb will fall, but the bomb will not fall. On this, my 30th birthday, I know nothing, and there is nothing to do but fall prey to desire. I think that's often for many men the experience of malaise. With no one really expecting anything more from men, with all of us writing men off and assuming that this is just the way men are, the toxic problems of men, with all of it, the whole system feeling for a lot of men like a joke, we end up falling back into desire, falling back into instinct and just giving into it. We've come to accept that this is just men. This must be what it means to be a man. And so we excuse ourselves from any pursuit of real character any mastery of our instincts and desires, and instead allow ourselves to just indulge into them. It's this place that I came up with this idea of instincts, this language of instincts. What are these masculine instincts, these instincts of manhood, that because of all of this malaise, this culture we live in, so many of us men have just accepted, have just given into, have just fallen into without something better to capture our attention? As men, we stop trying to be better and we just fall into what seems right or seems obvious or seems like man. Defensive, we start fighting for what we might not have even chosen. Um, C.S. Lewis writes quite a bit about this idea of human instincts. And in his writing, he defines an instinct as an unreflective, you haven't reflected on it, an unreflective or spontaneous impulse. The phrase he uses is that our instincts are behavior as if from knowledge. 
What he's trying to describe is that all of us have instincts, things that seem right to us, that seem obvious, that seem common sense, behavior, things that we do and act out as if from knowledge, as if we had reasoned our way to them and concluded that this was the obvious and right way to act. The problem Lewis is pointing out is that we don't reason out our instincts, their behavior as if it had come from knowledge. And Lewis points out that the real work of our instincts is trying to decide which of those instincts should be trusted and which should be checked. The real challenge of instincts is that they're not just sins. The church, I think, has done a pretty good job of pointing out the sins. We know pretty well as men where all the landmines are, and for many, many years, we've done a good job of cataloging them. Here are the way men tend to sin. Here are the way all of us tend to sin. Here are the sins we should watch out for. But we've never pushed the conversation beneath the sins to ask the questions about instincts. What are these impulses or desires or instincts that seem right to us, that seem unquestioned to us? At times, those instincts may be actually good, might actually be worth trusting. But at other times, having not chosen them or thought about them, we may be blindly indulging things that lead us to destruction. So Lewis says, the real question before all of us is to be self-aware enough to recognize the instincts that are motivating our behavior and to ask the question, is this particular instinct something that should be checked or something that I should trust? That's what seems to be causing so many of the questions and challenges around masculinity. While most people are talking about masculine instincts and traits, fewer and fewer are interested in understanding them, questioning them, knowing which ones to trust and which ones to check. In my view, there's two primary ways that men are being taught to think about these masculine instincts. The first, it'll be familiar to you, is our culture's conversation around toxic masculinity. That the traditional masculine instincts are toxic and should be deconstructed and rebuilt into a new identity of what manhood should look like in this age, our own. There's been a kind of equal and opposite reaction to that cultural conversation that now says that masculine instincts are actually salvific. They're your hope, your last holding on to an identity of meaningful manhood. They shouldn't be questioned but indulge. If you really want to be a man, you need to indulge the most masculine instincts at your core. They hope that by indulging masculine instincts, we can hold on to manhood. And on the opposite end, that by reconstructing it, we could find some better manhood. So here's my primary contention to you. What we end up missing in the way that our culture is framing that conversation that so often plays out in the church too, is this real conversation about how men actually become better. Both of the approaches, the toxic, the salvific indulgence, they both teach us to look to external things, to pay attention to the way manhood is lived out, and neither turns a man's attention back into his own heart to ask the question, Why are these instincts at work within me? Why are these particular sins, the sins that I find myself falling into? What are the tools and resources that faith gives me to grow beyond those instincts into a better instinct? Those conversations matter a lot, and unfortunately, they're not the conversations we tend to have. In the world, the conversations are always about toxicity, And in the church, what seems to happen when you spring up this topic of men is we quickly fall into debates or conversations about the roles men should play in churches and families. To ask the question about who men should be is usually to bring up a debate about egalitarian versus complementarian, the husband's role within a marriage relationship or a father's role within the home. 
There are Christians of very different perspectives on those questions, and those matter and I think are worth us considering, some we have before. But the problem is when we move immediately into the roles men should play, we don't ever get around to the conversation about how men develop enough character to play out those roles well. To just ask a man to bear great responsibility doesn't guarantee that he'll have enough character to bear that responsibility. And so we end up avoiding that conversation that I think matters most. What are my instincts? Where am I trusting those instincts where I should be checking them? And how do I grow into a manhood that has a better, more Christ-like character at its core? What we've lost is we've lost that wisdom that previous generations of men had for recognizing their instincts and learning to mature those instincts into true character. What I want to do over the next couple of months is try and do that work. Today is a bit of an introduction, framing the problem, framing how I think we need to have a different conversation. We'll eventually be moving into each of those instincts, and as I mentioned before, I think there's plenty to unpack for all of us as both men and women. But to the men in our congregation, what I want to say specifically is, can we look closer at the instincts that are at work within us? Can we become objective about the things in which we trust as if from knowledge that move us to action? Can we use the men of the Bible to gain a better perspective on ourselves and those instincts? And can we, in the process, cultivate a better instinct of faith that allows us to discern when to trust those instincts and when to check them, when to cultivate better ones? Can we learn the wisdom we need to become more like Christ and develop a better Christ-like character? I have some good news. I do have a passage of scripture for you. Don't worry, that wasn't the introduction, and now we're moving on. Uh, Think of this as a sermon in reverse. I've put the scripture at the end of the sermon instead of the beginning of the sermon like we normally do. But I do think all of this is actually grounded in scripture. It isn't as if I just went and stared at a group of men in culture for six years and then decided to give you my advice about it. I'm a pastor, after all, and I find myself again and again trying to search the scriptures to understand what it is happening in front of me, and the men that I pastor, but also in myself. Second uh, Peter chapter 1 is a passage I want to read from. You're welcome to turn there. You can just hear me read it. But Second Peter is a really interesting passage of scripture. At the time that Peter writes, Peter is probably, we believe, in Rome, And he probably, according to church tradition at least, knows that he is about to be executed by the emperor Nero. He specifically in this letter, the second second letter of Peter, makes known that the end of his life is quickly approaching and that he realizes it. Peter had to have also realized that this letter he wrote is probably the last words he would ever pass on to many of those believers in churches that he had served and helped pastor. These letters are probably circulating around the churches in Asia where he had spent time. And so it is that he sits down to give, as he even puts it in the letter himself, these final reminders of his life and his work. He puts it this way in verse 12 of chapter 1. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. We'll talk about the qualities in a moment. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it is right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, that he will be facing death soon. And I will make every effort so that my departure, that after my departure, you will be able at any time to recall these things. So in other words, Peter's saying, I'm putting these qualities down in writing 
so that when I am gone, you can remember them and live by them. It really is pretty remarkably personal for Peter, these final words. And so these qualities, if you jump up to verse 5, he writes them down for us. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. Peter writes, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Forever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I love that passage of scripture. Peter's reminder to the brothers, to the church, that he was knowing he would probably never speak to again. And he paints a picture of two possibilities. Those who forget these qualities. Not necessarily people who deny the faith, not people who turn their back on Jesus and walk away, but men who accept Christ and then forget the work involved in adding, supplementing that faith with these qualities. For Peter, he's describing those who just lose interest in the progress that comes. And the way he describes it, they end up blind and caught up in their own sins. They become ineffective and unfruitful in their life. It sounds a little bit like that word malaise that I introduced you to. Believing Christ, having faith, but yet never really making progress in it. Things never really getting worked out in a comprehensive way. Like giving in to instincts and not knowing why. A kind of ignorance that leads to indulgence. But the opposite image Peter paints is that there are those who see these qualities increasing across their life. He describes them as fruitful and full of knowledge and discerning and never faltering richly welcomed in the fullness of the kingdom of God. And those qualities that he lists are really interesting. Faith, the beginning, this starting moment of belief in which we enter into life with Christ. But an interesting phrase, we are supposed to supplement that faith, add to that faith, cultivate and grow that faith into virtue. Virtue, that idea of character, true character, the hard work of living out faith in practice. And from virtue, we develop greater knowledge, and from that knowledge, greater self-control, and from that self-control, a steadfastness, from that steadfastness, a holiness, a godliness that leads to brotherly affection and love. And so it is, Peter says to those men, and I think us, make every effort Do not accept faith as something that you possess and then slip back into just the way we are as men, but work at it. Put an effort into it. Develop character. Develop self-control. Grow it into godliness and brotherly love. Here's the way I want to say it to all of us this morning as a way of wrapping up, particularly to men, particularly on this, the first Sunday of a new year where you're all making goals and setting New Year's resolutions and thinking you're going to be so much better in the next 12 months to come. 
Do not give up on the faith that you have. Don't settle for faith as some abstract belief that holds you over until the end. Don't settle into the culture's malaise, the way it's let you off the hook. Don't accept that this is just the way we are as men. Don't check out. Don't coast or crawl your way into some comfortable man cave and disengage from the world and its complexities. God doesn't need men to prove their masculinity in some strange attempt at cliche manhood or beards or blowing things up. He needs men who know what it is across a life to sustain the work of Christian character, who actively work to grow virtue and knowledge and self-control and holiness out of the faith that they have received. And so Peter will say, in many ways with his dying last words, putting them in writing so that they could return to them again and again, make every effort. Perhaps the most devastating thing we've accepted is that this isn't really possible, or that it doesn't matter as much as Peter seems to think that it does. I think back to that quote I read to you in that series of the problems facing men, that our culture has said that men are just lazy slobs and perverts, and it's just the way men are. And so by it, we've reaped a generation of men who seem to live up to that low bar of expectations. What Peter offers is something better, something higher, I want to say the same thing to you and to the men of our day, that God is calling us to true character. He's calling us to an ability to bear greater responsibility. He's calling us to become stewards of our instincts in such a way that they mature into something useful and helpful to his kingdom, and to work at that work with skill and wisdom and determination. There really is so much at stake when it comes to this conversation. Our churches, as many of you have seen played out across leadership and pastors and the men in churches, have faltered and stumbled and failed. They lack integrity, they lack character, they lack truthfulness, and so by it, their sins and their abuses of power have devastated churches and communities. The same plays out in families. Many of you know the brokenness of fathers. Our communities are suffering in so many ways. Go over and volunteer at Pregnancy Care Center and see all of the ways that a lack of male engagement is devastating families and communities. There has never been a time where we need this conversation, where we need men to bear this responsibility like we do now. We need a movement of men determined to be more like Christ and to bear that work that Peter sets before us. So I want to spend a couple months talking about it. I hope that out of these two months, all of us as men grow in character. And as I said in the beginning, I think there's plenty of ways as women we grow in character too. This whole community becoming more like Christ. Do you remember when we had that series before Christmas about who we are as a church? One of the passages that stood out most clear to me that continued to resonate with me was that calling that we are to encourage one another, to support one another. At its core, that's really what I hope this next couple of months is, that all of us might understand our instincts better, that all of us might take greater responsibility for that work, that all of us might find ourselves motivated to what Peter is calling us to, to a greater faith, a greater character, a greater knowledge and love, and that so by it, our own lives, the lives of our friends and families, this church, the community we're a part of, 
they, they would all receive the benefits of a growing Christ-likeness. I want to close this with prayer, and we're going to pray together. And the simple prayer would just be that. Um, in so many ways, it's what we sang this morning when we began. God, whatever this work is you want to do in me this year, pour your spirit into my life. Give me the wisdom and the discernment, the motivation to keep at it and to do it, to live into everything that you have for me and all of the ways you seek me to grow and mature and become more like you. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, this morning we come first to represent ourselves, to ask that you would do that work. God, pour your spirit out on us. God, give us wisdom and discernment to see the places in our own lives where we've grown comfortable, where we've checked out, where we've begun to indulge things that you long for us to grow beyond. God, I pray for each of us that this faith would move us into greater virtue and that virtue into a greater knowledge of who you are and what we have in you and that knowledge into deeper self-control and discipline that that self-control would lead us into godliness and holiness and that holiness would deepen the relationships we have with one another and that ultimately our lives would become lives of love for others in this community, all of it stacking and building upon what we have in you by faith. God, inspire us again by your spirit that it's possible, that we aren't just stuck in these lives the way they are, but that by the power of your gospel and your spirit, you, like a loving father, discipline us and lead us and guide us and mature us into something better. And God, we do pray for our own families and communities that you would do this work specifically amongst men. God, our culture is being devastated by the brokenness of men in so many ways, by the aggression and violence, but by the apathy and disengagement God, there are so many men that are checking out and giving up and abandoning it all together. God, we need your spirit to move, to inspire men, not into some cliche masculinity, but into Christ-likeness, into the values of your kingdom, into the character that you offer by the power of your gospel. So we pray that you would do it, that you would do it here in our own hearts and our own lives. And that by that work, it might spread to our sons, our families. That it might be true of the men we work with in workplaces, in this community. God, in all of the places that men are falling short of what you have, that you, by your spirit, would mature us into that better instinct, that better life, into your kingdom. And God, we're grateful that Peter gave us these words, these final words, to inspire us again that we would be emboldened to make every effort to grow, to become all that you have for us and have given us by grace and by mercy bestowed on us, that we would take advantage of it and live into it, not for our own glory, not for our own happiness, but that we might know you more and we might glorify you more and we might reflect you more to this world, true Christ-likeness at work in us. So we humble ourselves this morning and we say, as we said at the beginning, pour your spirit into our hearts and our lives. Lead us and guide us and show us the way forward. It's in your name we pray.